Welcome to Pushing the Limits with your host, Lisa Tarmody, where it's all about health optimization, anti-aging, longevity, and being the very best you can be. Brought to you by lisatarmody.com. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back. Thank you very much for stopping by. Today, I have an extremely interesting uh, interview with Ryan Smith from True Diagnostic. Uh, he is going over my personal age report. So True Age uh, Diagnostic do uh, True Diagnostic do age testing. So they use a whole range of different clocks that tell us how well you are aging. And when I first got this report, I had a heart attack. Now, um, the first number on there, which is the extrinsic age, age came up not so great. Um, and I was like, wow, why, why? And then I thought about it. I've lived a life of an extreme athlete. So just to put this in perspective, um, a friend of mine said that you've lived the equivalent of a sort of Rolling Stones uh, rock star lifestyle um, doing extreme sport. And uh, obviously some of that is written in my DNA and in my methylation <laughs> uh, clock. Um, how However, Ryan has gone through this entire report for me and shown where I'm absolutely nailing it, which I'm really, really excited about, and it's the most important pieces of this report. Uh, he also talks about some of the limitations and some of the exciting developments that are coming in their omics report, which they're about to launch in a few weeks, which will really start to give us information about not only what your, you know, a number for your biological versus your chronological age is, but also what systems are doing better than others. Like, uh, is your heart uh, aging at a faster rate? Uh, are you uh, the stem cell divisions? How, how often are you dividing in your stem cells and and the effect that that's having? Uh, they can also look at some of the lifestyle things that you've done. Like, uh, have you drunk too much in the past? Have you been exposed to smoke? Uh, have you got a high a risk of diabetes or obesity? Some of these things are already in their reports. Uh, Ryan. And does say that there's some limitations with those things, but the new reports that's coming out uh, in about three weeks' time, which will have the omics um, updates in it. And the beautiful thing with this company is you 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 do the test once, and they'll keep updating the report. Sometimes there's a tiny little fee if they have to pay for an algorithm or something, but it's uh, really going to be able to keep up with you. And what's coming also is their fit report. I've forgotten the exact name of it. Um, this will be they are able to think, see things like uh, your grip strength and your balance test and your coordination and all of these things from methylation, not doing the test, not doing the grip strength and all of that stuff, but actually from your blood sample that you send in for this test. So absolutely amazing what this company is doing. I do think that this, uh, while at the moment people haven't mostly not got their head around what this is, and it's just a number that gives you a chronological versus a biological age, but this is actually so much more. They're looking at everything from telomere length to genetic risks to omics reports to the fit side of the reports to the Dunedin Pace study. Um, so there's lots of uh, nuance to this conversation. It's an area where I'm realizing I'm going to have to start to do more study in order to implement this in my uh, clinic and to be able to use this. Um, and I really encourage other doctors and clinicians that are out there, health care professionals, to um, start to educate yourself on this because this is going to give you predictors of how well people are doing way, way before uh, 
anything, even things like cardiovascular disease actually pop up or atherosclerosis pop up on scans, you'll be able to see the changes. And this is where the power in this lies. Uh, you know, even looking at your, your, uh, immune age, uh, red cell distribution width and your, your things like your, um, neutrophil to lymphocyte ratios, all of these things are going to be taken into consideration. There's CD4 to CD8 ratios. There's just already they're doing a heck of a lot and there's more to come. And as it gets validated, there'll be, you know, so, so in other words, you have to keep up in this space. It is an evolving space. It's not a perfect science. The first generation clocks have got some limitations, as you'll see in my report. What's he said, you know, that's neither here nor there really, but that Dunedin Pace report, mine came back at 0.69, which is apparently absolutely exceptional, which means I'm rating only at the uh, aging at the rate of 0.69 of a year for every year that I'm on the planet. And that is an exponential decrease in the risk that I have for many of the diseases and uh, really shows me that a lot of the stuff that I'm doing is clawing back some of the damage that I perhaps, perhaps did as a young person. Um, and also some of the stuff that, you know, um, that I'm implementing now is really having a massive impact. One of the interesting ones was, was alcohol. Um, I, you can do a self-reporting and then it looks at some of the damage. And I was concerned that mine was, you know, higher than the average when I don't drink a lot. However, there was a period after my father died when I, you know, was drinking a, a glass of wine every day. I certainly hadn't lost the plot, but I was not coping and, uh, that shows up in my DNA, um, so to speak. So what also came out of that conversation is probably because I know my own genetic risk factors for the, the glutathione family of genes and my, um, uh, I have very, very poor genes in that respect and I have very poor inflammatory genes. So for someone like me, I have to be extremely careful if I'm going to expose myself to any sort of toxins. And I've, I've known that, but really that was written in, in my uh, DNA today. So I hope you enjoy. This is bearing my soul, <laughs> bearing my DNA from the inside out um, was was uh, quite difficult for me to do, but I wanted to share this with you because I think it's going to be powerful for you going forward uh, to understand the space and to, you know, it's really motivated me to double down on some of the good things I'm doing and to maybe change some of the things that I'm not doing so well. So um, I hope you enjoy this interview with the the brilliant and amazing Ryan Smith. Um, he's absolutely fan, fantastic and just a, um, a, a genius brain. So I hope you enjoy it. We'll see you over on the other side. You know, to, to talk about why we trust different algorithms and outputs more than different others, um, I just want to go into a little bit of the history here. And I think we've, we talked about this briefly when we spoke on the podcast. But, um, you know, the, these clocks originally started in 2013. And, and first, they weren't even meant to be health predictors, right? They were meant to just to be chronological age predictors. So again, trying to date people if they left their DNA at a crime scene to see how old they were or to use in refugees to see if they were adults or minors and therefore eligible for asylum, right? So uh, then they started to be using these really large cohorts. And when they did, they found an interesting pattern, which is that those people who were older than their chronological age were at negative risk of outcomes. And those people who were younger than their chronological age were protected, right? But these all were still on clocks that were trained to predict someone's chronological age. And, and really, we would consider these first 
first-generation clocks a little outdated. Um, and, and so these intrinsic and extrinsic clocks that we put are still these first-generation clocks. Um, and I want to mm-hmm. go over some of the problems with them. Um, because generally, the better that you make these clocks, the closer they get to just telling you your birthday, right? Which is not something we want to do. Because um, you can just, you don't need an expensive test to tell you that. Most people don't, I should say. Um, <laughs> but but with that being said, this, these clocks right around 2018 started to become a little bit more sophisticated. Um, and they got more sophisticated by instead of training it to predict chronological age, they trained it to pick up the biological effect, right? So we're not looking at things that are just correlated to chronological age. We're really trying to pick up the biology of aging. And so the ways yeah. that these changed was that they they started to be trained to biomarkers, phenotypic biomarkers of aging. So things like uh, Morgan Levine's PhenoAge, which looked at nine blood-based biomarkers, um, like, you know, serum albumin or red cell distribution width, for instance, um, or in case of GrimAge, uh, looking to predict time until death um, as the major output, um, or telomere length, for instance. And so these clocks got better. And the way that we know they got better is that they were more predictive of negative outcomes. So the people who had the same acceleration on these algorithms were at much higher risk of negative outcomes. And those people who were younger at the same as the first clocks were even more significantly protected from those outcomes. So we know that this was more predictive because it was capturing more of the complete biology of aging. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Perfect. And so lastly was the, you know, the, the one we talked about, you know, a lot, um, the Dunedin Pace, which also captured biological phenotypes. But instead of Morgan Levine's nine biomarkers, it used 21 biomarkers. But the wow. most important thing is it did it over time. So it actually measured biomarker change from the time that these people were born all the way until the time they were, you know, now 51 years in our, in our most recent follow-up. Um, and so this Dunedin Pace is the only third generation because it spans across time. And so just to show you um, a little bit of, of this, um, I want to show you, for instance, that Horvath clock, like our intrinsic clock, um, one standard deviation increase in that represents a 2% increased risk of mortality, whereas mm-hmm. one standard deviation for the Dunedin Pace represents a 64% increased risk of mortality. So again, as we're trying to figure out which one's more important, we're going to go with the one that predicts 64%, not the one that predicts 2%, right? No. Um Gotcha. Does that make sense? And so, so going back to, to your results, if we're looking at them, uh, you might initially have been concerned because you're seeing this, you know, right around yep. uh, the six year age gap. Um, and that is certainly a little bit higher in our cohort. Um, you know, but our cohort is also, I, I should mention, super competitive, right? The, some of the people who are doing all the amazing things that you are, um, uh, as well. And then we also see this with the extrinsic, where even though you're lower, you're probably still a little bit above average. Um, and, and so, so at one point in time, this was the only tool that we had. Um, but but now if we look at your Dunedin pace, we see something that is extraordinary and, and makes a lot more sense, quite frankly, right? Uh, based on all the things that you're doing. You can look at your Dunedin pace and you are definitively like on the outliers of this. Um, in, in oh, wow. Age group, right. You're this is an excellent, excellent score. And this is the one that is by far the most predictive. Um, so, again, going back to the, you know, that, that PowerPoint. Um, that we were sort of talking about, um, you know, you can see it even compared to all these other clocks. It beats all of these other clocks in terms of, you know, relationship to class. Yep. 
mile markers. It's the most precise. Uh, you know, here it beats every other clock in terms of precision. Um, so mm-hmm. it, that means that it, it, it's really accurate. And if we tested your sample multiple times, it would be the most consistent. Um, and then in addition to that, this is the one that's the most important. And, and this was written by Jamie Justice, a researcher at Wake Forest, um, who was basically saying, are these clocks ready for clinical trial use? Um, and, the, and the answer was no when she wrote it in 2020 because of this last point that had not been satisfied, which is, are these interventions responsive to changes that we already know beneficially by biology? Um, and thankfully, the Dunedin pace showed that this was correct. In a caloric restriction study, we saw that this went down, um, which mm-hmm. is exactly what we would expect because caloric restriction is a, a pretty well-validated intervention for aging across mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. mammals. The problem, though, was that these first-generation clocks, or ones that used age, actually went up with this intervention, which we know is not correct, right? Um, uh, And so the only one to go down significantly was that Dunedin pace. And so not only is this the most predictive and precise algorithm, but it also changes to interventions we know beneficially affect aging. And so for this reason, that's why we're prioritizing the Dunedin pace above all others. Um, Do the others, does the initial one still have correlations um, to all those negative outcomes? Yes, but not as high correlations or highest predictions as the Dunedin pace. And so we're always going to prioritize this marker over these these other classical markers. Um, and can so- I ask you? Can I, you know, just interrupt you there for a second, if I can? Yeah. Um, so when you know, like I've lived the someone, Greg actually McPherson said to me, <laughs> um, I'm not surprised even at your intrinsic age. Eh? You've lived the life of a rock star, basically, <laughs> as far as being an athlete, right? So I've I've smashed the crap out of my body for 30 years before I got into the anti-aging longevity world. Is that what's being reflected? Even though these aren't, you know, these are first generation clocks. Yeah. Is that you know, like showing that, hey, up until this point or say up until five years ago, you did smash the shit out of yourself <laughs> and we can see that. And now you're clawing your way back because the, the Dunedin Pace study is sort of showing, you know, yeah. um, whatever I'm doing is working now. Certainly. So so this is... Um these are all the factors which are weighted some of these early algorithms. And so um, mm-hmm. particularly, you know, we're looking at the, these blue and red. These are the most similar. Um, and so you can see all the different associations. And you're absolutely right. Physical activity is a weird one uh, because, mm. you know, it, you see these really small parts uh, right here. The effect sizes for for the extrinsic and intrinsic here are for one, going in the wrong direction in, in the case of the extrinsic wow. and the case of the intrinsic are very small. And that's that's exactly right. You're exactly right, because these had what we saw with these is sort of a biphasic response where some activity was great, but too much activity was actually negative, uh, which is limiting some of these associations. Um, and, and so certainly, uh, you know, that that could be one of the reasons why. But again, what we're seeing in these chronological trend clocks are correlations to age, not necessarily, um, you know, correlations to biological phenotypes. Types. And so, mm-hmm. so uh, you know, there could be a whole host of reasons why in your, your intrinsic age is a little bit more accelerated. Um, but whenever we see a, a Dunedin pace of 0.69, that would alleviate any concerns of a fast aging. I mean, you're again, wow. you're setting a, an outlier here, which is amazing. Um, and so this is definitely the one that we would care about. And it's also way uh, more highly linked to a lot of different outcomes, not just death and disease, uh, but all of these different things that you would see here. So balance, gait speed, you know, um, so how you move about the world, how you think in the world in terms of, you know, your perceptual reasoning, working memory, IQ even, um, and then even how you look uh, as well with, you know, that, that graphic we always like to show, you know, these are real images of people who are 45 years of age 
Um, all of them are the same 45 years of age, but these wow. are what the slowest aging members of the cohort look like versus the fastest aging members of the cohort. So again, the Dunedin pace is also not only the most predictive of all disease, the predictive, but it's also the most predictive of all these quality of life factors we also associate with aging. And so again, this is why we prioritize it so much more. And just to let you know, in the next three weeks, this intrinsic and extrinsic are actually going to come off our platform. Um, wow, we'll be replacing okay. it with a new report um, that we've spent the last three years working on, which uh, you will absolutely love. Um, and I'm sure that you're going to score much, much better on that. Yay. <laughs> Being a very competitive person too, <laughs> this, is, this is really good. Um, but, you know, like looking at that um, uh, extrinsic, so that is looking at the immune system. And from my teachers, I know that, you know, the immune system can tell us a, a heck of a lot about how, how well we are doing. And I have noticed that, you know, I've got some issues in that department. Um, yeah. So is, is that, that that does have some correlation? I mean, I'm minus five, six years. But um, is that, you know, still going to come off because it's not exact? I mean, your, your red cell distribution width and, and your, your neutrophils versus your lymphocyte ratio, is yeah. that what you're looking at? There? I'm looking at it, yeah. So, so generally what we would want, I would say for most people, their extrinsic tends to be around eight years lower on average than their intrinsic. Um, and so for you, you're 12 years, which is better. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, what we're seeing is that you're still a little bit above average, um, in our cohort, um, in terms of that age rate. But again, that's not necessarily bad. Um, you know, uh, and, and so again, cause our cohort is so competitive, right? Our cohort is the, the who's who of top of 1% medicine, of the world right? do the um, stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're doing everything they can. They tend to be affluent, be able to, they're able to spend a lot of money on their own healthcare. Um, but one of the things we really look here is that CD4 to CDA T cell ratio. Uh, because, you know, as we get older, we become more immunosenescent. Um, yeah. And sometimes that can drop the CD4 to CDA T cell ratio. But yours is exactly where we would want it to be. It's between one and four. Oh, good. And, and so that's that's perfect. I, I, I think that your ratios look really good. Um, and some of our new reporting, we'll, we'll expand this even further um, uh, to tell you a whole host of immune cell subset outputs. Uh, so just to show you, uh, uh, you know, this is what the a new immune report will look like, um, which will include... Wow. Wow. even more cell types and then also even more ratios uh so, so uh, they can tell you each a little bit more and so that again will be happening in just a few weeks uh in terms of updates just interrupting the show to let you know about our patron community here and the podcast at Pushing the Limits. We've been going for eight years and we really need your support to keep the show on air and free to everybody so that everyone gets this fantastic information uh, from all these great doctors, scientists, athletes, business people from all around the world. So we would love you to come and join us. You get a lot of exclusive member benefits when you do, but really it's about supporting the show and keeping it on air. And for a coffee or two a month, that would be fantastic if you can come and join us. You can go to patron.lisatamati.com. That's patron.lisatamati.com and check it all out. Okay, so and, and people who have the old reports, are they going to get updates or that you have to test again to get the new report, so to speak? Yeah, no, we'll update uh, all of the data. Um, we, oh, wow. We, for some of them, we have to pay, particularly for one algorithm, our new omic age algorithm, um, which will look like this. Um, we do have to pay a license fee to Harvard for our co-development. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be an additional $15, um, yeah, which will wow. go to Harvard, cool. but everything else will be updated for free. Um, wow. So all of your, your immune ages will be updated for free to this. Um, you know, we'll update your CRP uh, inflammatory reports and cognition, and then we'll also update all of your summary reports 
efforts and and everything that we can as well. Um, so so we don't charge unless we have to. Um, we're we're paying another. That's amazing. Um, but but yeah, for, so for for your results again, this is certainly not bad, and this student even pace is excellent. I know we talked briefly about the rejuvenation Olympics, but if you were to probably take two more tests over the course of six months and you had something consistent here, you'd probably be in the top five uh, uh, of of people with their Dunedin paces. Um, well, let's do that. I'm going yeah. <laughs> to, I want to win the Olympics. Right? Yeah, Come so this, on. This, this is our rejuvenation <laughs> Olympics website, um, which shows, you know, so you see some notable people on here, like Peter Diamandis and Ben Grinfield, oh, wow. Steve Aoki um, is on here as well. Um, and so, um, so, yeah, so I'd love to, love to have you on. Um, oh, hell yeah. The requirements <laughs> are three tests over at least six months. Um, okay. And, and so, uh, but I'll send you that website in case you want to register, um, mm-hmm. at the very least. But this, this student pace is, I'm jealous of. This is awesome. Uh, and if there's yay. one metric I'd want to score well here, it's this, this one right here. Oh, amazing. That's amazing. So all of the hard, hard work that I have been doing over the last eight years or so since I've been in this world and since I stopped being a crazy athlete, smashing mm-hmm. the shit out of myself, um, it has been paying off. Obviously. Yeah. And, and- and to be honest with you, we see a lot of the same pattern in a lot of our, our physicians, right? Because oh, wow. they've, they've, you know, let's just say an ER medicine physician who yeah. works, you know, 14 hour shifts, Crazy hours. A week, uh, tears their body up, residency, you know, all the different things that these physicians do. They might sometimes have poor ages, but then their rates of aging now that they're in this integrative cash based space are much, much better, right? Wow. Um, wow. And, and so this is not an abnormal pattern, but I would say it's abnormal to see this low of a Dunedin pace. This is a great score here. Oh, I'm so stoked because yeah, <laughs> I work be. really hard, you right? Should, you, you should be stoked. That is a, a Dunedin pace that is phenomenal. Um, wow. And uh, so it's definitely something to be happy about. Um, the last of our age-related biomarkers, at least for now, uh, we will be adding our fit age, which I imagine you'll score very well at. Um, <laughs> but uh, but we also have telomere length. And, and again, I just want to talk a little bit about why we don't love telomere length. Um, you know, I don't want to belabor the point, but, um, you know, telomere length, although correlated to aging, is not really predictive of any outcomes in aging. Um, and so mm-hmm. th- we always like to cite this paper, which says that, you know, telomere length is extensively validated, but it has low predictive power. Um, right. and so with that being said, you know, uh, this telomere length has better predictions of many different types of outcomes, but this is the one thing I like to show as well, which is that in the Generation Scotland cohort, they did an analysis of how much these things impact your, your overall phenotypes. Um, and looking at those first generation clocks, like the intrinsic and extrinsic clocks, um, compared to um, you know, these other, you know, uh, markers like telomere length, telomere length affects 2.8% of the end phenotype. Whereas even biological age, even those first generation clocks represent over 28.5%. So again, as we're comparing which ones are more important, definitively those biological age clocks. And we've got data that suggests that the Dunedin paces represent over 45 to 48% of those phenotypic outputs. Um, and so again, we don't care about telomere length quite as much as we would with mm-hmm. some of those other markers. Um, and, uh, but with that being said, your telomere length is still, you know, pretty much right on average. Um, mm. and so, uh, seven kilobase pair telomere length, um, you know, puts you right around where we would expect, uh, which is right on that average trend line, probably a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and there are things, so, you know, we do still use telomere length as a predictor of, um, so just for, for those listening, telomere length are the, the little chromosomes, uh, the, the little shoe caps at the end of the chromosome, so to speak, and, and it's how much your, your, 
you're um, getting close to the end of that cell rep, uh, life cycle, if it's like, if you like, isn't it? Um, right. So okay. it's, but it's not as good as what we used to think it was going to be the telomere length. Although yeah. people that are really sick do have short telomeres, don't they? So, yeah. yeah. And there are a lot of reasons. So one of the things that we um, oftentimes say here, if you're in the bottom 20%, is you might want to consider like a course of senolytics, um, mm. you know, because generally if you have low telomere lengths, it means that you probably have more replicative senescence uh, where your mm-hmm. cells have gone into senescence as a result of losing too much telomere length, right? Um, but uh, But interestingly enough, we just did a trial with, you know, probably the most popular synolytic regimens, cisatinib and quercetin. Um, mm. And it actually significantly shortened telomere length. Uh, by wow. And so we still might recommend fizetin, but we don't recommend the combination of cisatinib and quercetin, um, which significantly showed telomere attrition. The one thing that's also been correlated in meta-analyses to be better for this measurement is omega-3 fatty acid supplementation. Wow. Which... And, and so we do recommend that, but it's not yeah. something that's going to change overnight. It's going to take, yeah. uh, you know, some time to, to change. Um, and one of the, uh, yeah. um, one of the other things I'll send to you is a PowerPoint, which is sort of what we call the eight reliable ways to reduce epigenetic age. So it goes into all the things that you should stop, all the things you might want to consider starting, and then all the things which have validated interventional trials. Um, wow. And so uh, I'll give you this as sort of a, a cheat sheet, so to speak, of, of what changes each algorithm. And we also have um, sort of this... Uh, I would say provider interventional sheet, which talks about all the studies which have been published with different interventions and how they've affected each of these different markers. Um, so it's another good cheat sheet. You know, some of the things we always recommend are things like vitamin D, stress reduction, you know, better eating, more plant-based diets, um, uh, for instance, and, and DASH and, and Mediterranean diets as well. So I, so we can go over that toward the end of the call a little bit deeper if you want mm-hmm. to. But, mm-hmm. but overall, I think that uh, your aging uh, your aging outcomes are a little bit uh, conflicting, uh, but not too much because, again, we're going to trust this to need pace, and this is incredibly strong. Um, yeah. You know, even if you're slightly above one here, you'd increase your risk of death over the next seven years by fifty six percent, and you increase your risk of a chronic disease diagnosis by fifty four percent. So we really want to. I'm keep really reducing yeah. my rate massively of having, you know some yes. horrible disease yeah which is yeah that's just absolutely yeah amazing. and all those quality of life things too right balance cognitive decline grip strength even facial yeah. all of those things are correlated to this marker yeah and and i know like things like grip strength come off the charts or one leg balance yeah. test you know i know from just you know doing the not this test but other tests that yeah, yeah. those are exceptional so that's that's great so good yeah, yeah. and you should like, you said, be be very happy about that because those are great scores. And so um, so that's, I would say, really it for our biological age reporting. And I think overall, uh, you have a lot to be excited about here because of that you need and pace. Um, but we also have disease-specific reporting, too. And this is yeah. something we traditionally wouldn't give direct to consumer. We'll only give through our providers. Um, but I'm, I would love to go through it with you at least briefly, if that's okay. Mm, yes, please, because I, I didn't really understand this. Yeah, and this can be a little bit more complicated. Um, and I'll send you this PowerPoint as well, which is our interpretation guide of how to go through some of these disease-specific reports. Um, right. But uh, the first thing we like to do is this mitotic clock. And so this mitotic clock is a measure of the number of stem cell divisions that you have per year. Um, and this is sort of an incidental finding that occurred um, as a result of one question, which is that, you know, we have certain tissues in our body that have cancer at higher rates than others. So, for instance, our thyroid gets cancer at a 1% rate, whereas our pelvic bone gets cancer at a 0.003% rate. And so we people were sort of asking the question, why do certain 
tissue types have cancer at different rates. Um, mm-hmm. And the first thing they ask is, is it genetic? And genetics only explained right around 10% of the variants. Then mm-hmm. they said, maybe it's environmental exposures. And that only explains 15% of the variants. But what they started to see is that the total number of stem cell divisions in a particular tissue actually correlated very linearly with the lifetime risk of cancer in that tissue. Um, right. And so the idea here is what we call this bad luck hypothesis, which is that the more your stem cells replicate, the more likely they are to create a, a DNA error in, in transcribing that DNA. And then the more likely that error is to create cancer. Right. Um, so that's sort of the, the thesis and hypothesis here. Um, it's been proved out pretty well. Here you can see uh, this is sort of the, the epitoc or the, the scores that we have. And then also on the bottom, you see the um, the different normal tissue versus intermediate cancer versus, you know, pretty bad dysplasia. And you can see that the, the rates of the stem cell replication tend to increase. Um, same here with different other types of tissues. Um, and so this is, again, pretty well proven. What we're doing, though, is we're not measuring tissue, we're measuring blood. And so what we really want to see here is that, that your score is really um, lower, right? We want you to not be in that top five percentile, essentially. Um, and, and what we're seeing here for you is that you're not. You're around the 72nd percentile, which is certainly not bad, especially for your age group. We're getting sort of right around, uh, you know, barely over that average trend line, um, which is which is good, right? So we'd probably see no increased risk of cancer with this particular marker. Um, the other thing that we would do is type 2 diabetes uh, risk. And what we see here is that you're not at increased risk for type 2 diabetes. Um, sometimes this can be falsely elevated with people taking a statin, which is something I always just like to say incidentally, yeah. because everyone always likes to debate statins. Uh, but one yeah. of the interesting <laughs> things about statins is that they do increase your risk of type 2 diabetes. Um, and the way that they oh. do that, oh. um, the yeah. way that they do that is, uh, by um, this one receptor, actually, which makes insulin secretion less likely to happen. Um, and, and so we know that statins uh, tend to um, increase risk of type 2 diabetes because they increase methylation at this ABCG1. Um, and, and so uh, it's a great proof of concept to show that, hey, these, you know, this is the mechanism of action um, of these epigenetic uh, effects actually impact your disease risk. And that's why statins in, increase risk of type 2 diabetes. Um, wow. so, uh, so I think that's just an interesting aside, but you have no risk here, which is great. This is what we would want to see. If you do mm-hmm. see a patient with an increased risk, we would recommend doing some type of action um, to try and treat that. Um, we also have an this one was, report there. Yeah, this it. one was it's interesting. It's not a good report. I don't, we're taking it off our platform. We developed this in a Spanish patient population where 30% of people read at increased risk. Then we went to a U.S. patient population and right around 92 or 93% of people read at increased risk. So everyone uh-huh. I see here reads at increased risk. You're actually, uh, you have one no increased risk, which is surprising. I usually don't, don't even see that. Um, uh, and so I would just ignore this entirely. It doesn't work, I would say, outside of a Spanish patient population. Oh, great, because you know, it's like, <laughs> I'm like I'm like really lean, you know. <laughs> am I doing am I doing a lot of things right, and therefore I'm lean? And if I if I let go, I'd be like really obese, really fast. Or <laughs> Definitely, and, and 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 that's one of the problems with these algorithms. Sometimes we can't tell you cause or effect, um, right? We can't tell you. You might say you're high risk, but that doesn't mean you have the phenotype, um, right? But but this is one report that everyone loves and tends to be highly accurate. Um, uh-huh. And so in this report, we're actually able to tell you how likely are you to respond uh, with weight loss to caloric restriction. And, and this is not always something you want to see as full response, right? As, as people get older, for instance, and, you know, we recommend caloric restriction as an intervention, um, right? But we 
we don't want older people to become frail um, no. or have sarcopenia as a result of decreasing their, um, you know, decreasing their their caloric uh, intake. And so, um, so here though, you are, are probably one of the eight to nine percent of people that are non-responders, meaning that you're going to have to work a little bit harder to lose weight than most other people would be. Um, wow. And so it means that you might have to balance uh, a multitude of interventions, right? Uh, aerobic, anaerobic activity, for, you know, making sure your your hormones are optimized and making sure you're insulin sensitive uh, more so than other people. So you might have to work just a little bit harder with the same amount of caloric restriction that other people would. Wow, that's interesting because, you know, it, it, when I was younger, as a young girl and I didn't know anything about diet and everything, I really did struggle with my weight. And yeah. now when when most people are struggling with their weight, right, menopause and hormonal changes I'm not struggling with my weight because I do a hundred things to not struggle with my weight you know, you know I'm like constantly you know things like berberine and metformin and rapamycin and you know like um, peptides and exercise and everything in you know saunas and a whole whole raft of things but from a genetic tendency I would have that tendency to put on weight at this if I if I didn't yeah, you know, definitely. you're just going to have to work a little bit harder. And and we have seen this change in people, too. So we'll, we're, mm-hmm. we're not sure quite what, what makes a change just yet. But um, we do know that this is tends to be pretty predictive. Wow. OK, so I'm going to have to work to keep it where it's at. Just a, a little bit more than other people. Uh, and this is just okay. with caloric restriction. So it might mean that, you know, your levels of activity might help you lose weight more so than others. But this only is relationship to caloric restriction gotcha. as an output. Um, and so, um, so just something to, to mention. Um, we also have smoking and disease risk reports. It looks like that, uh, you have a relatively high drinking, um, uh, rate, which might be a little bit higher than we would normally see. Um, but yeah, also- so <clears throat> yeah, sorry. just a comment on that one. So, um, you know, three years ago, I lost my dad. And for a couple of months after that, or a few months after that, I was having like one glass of wine a day to cope with life, right? I was certainly grieving really bad. Is that written in the report here? Like, is that what I'm seeing here? So that so, damage uh, that I did. Maybe so do. We, the, we don't know with drinking. Um, in the case of, of in the case of smoking, there, um, which you don't have, uh, I would say you have no uh, increased risk for. Um, so it, it's very unlikely that you've smoked for any significant pe- period of your life. No, I never smoked. But my I was yeah. my mother smoked during pregnancy, and my parents smoked my entire childhood. Yeah, this, um, so, this is on the lower end, uh, which may, I was going to suggest that you might have been exposed to some secondhand smoke. Um, yeah. But th- unfortunately, at this low side that we're looking at, it never it never changes if you've been a smoker. Yep. So so wow. um, we can see if you've been a smoker or a former smoker or you've been a never smoker. And and what we see here is that you're in that never um, area, but you're sort of toward the lower end of that never area, uh, which yeah. might suggest that that you've uh you you've had some exposure but you've never particularly been a heavy smoker um in the case of our alcohol consumption score we're not really sure of the timelines um so we created this score by basically looking in our cohort um and asking how much they drink right um and uh so we basically created a a methylation risk percentile from zero to 100 and in each of these categories you can see the average and then the relative uh, sort of error bars here um Mm. And this, what we ask in the, in the registration is how much do you drink? Right. And so you reported yeah. that you drink once per week or on special occasions, but your methylation risk score looks a little bit more like someone who regularly would drink. Um, yeah, which is, you know, because I, I don't now. Um, yeah. I did for a few months there after mom, after dad, you know, died. Mm-hmm. Um, 
would is that to do also with things like your gst like my gst family genes are an absolute disaster so i have no glutathione you know my gst t1 m1 and p1 are just completely disastrous and my mthfr and you know methylation genes are also poor uh and the sod2 and the gpx gene are also poor um so would that have a correlation like i just don't handle alcohol well if i do have a drink so we don't know, uh, to be honest with you. Um, right. And we definitely need to do more of that analysis. Um, but, but you know, we tend to, you know, one of the things we would like to see in a perfect report like this is no overlap of these individual, you know, squares, right? Um, right. Uh, because these these become ambiguous. Um, but we're not really sure what all puts into that. And so we're creating some better alcohol risk predictors. Uh, right now, we can even predict how many pack per years you've smoked. Uh, we can even predict wow. you know, how much you use marijuana or MDMA. Um, wow. but, uh, but we don't put those on the reports, obviously. The drinking one needs a little bit resolution. But unfortunately, people's behaviors on drinking are usually not always very consistent. Um, and, and so it, it becomes hard. Some people might high binge drink, but they might only do it once you know, a day versus some people might drink, you know, small amounts, but they do it every day. Um, mm. and, and so some of these behaviors from uh, alcohol perspective tend to be a little bit harder even than other behaviors. Um, but, uh, but we, we published a trial on this and I'll, I'll just pull this up, uh, so you can see it where we looked at the impact of smoking alcohol and marijuana use, um, and then its relationship to different diseases, um, which is also interesting because we were able to, for instance, connect, um, things like marijuana use to anxiety, um, related. Wow. Past- for instance. Mm-hmm. And so some really cool things here. And that was only in 2000 patients, one of our first studies that we performed, uh, or sorry, 3000 patients in our cohort. Um, and, and so even with really low volumes, we can find some really interesting things. Um, and so, uh, but, but again, it looks like that, that there might be, you know, I think all of those reasons you said might be reason that yours is accelerated here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, in other words, with my body type and my genetics, I probably just can't get away with anything. Don't do it. Yeah. And and generally people who have what we call alcohol use disorders, um, which is just heavy drinking more than, you know, generally six or seven drinks per week are on average 2.2 years accelerated compared to those who are not. Um, And so really, I would say that we haven't found any amount of drinking, which is positively correlated to better aging. No, I, I agree. I agree. I think yeah. it's just there. There is no, and, you know, this whole resveratrol red wine thing. Yeah, nah. <laughs> it just takes a resveratrol. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I love, you know, another controversial one. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I think. Yeah. Uh, with all that to be said, you know, this is a, a pretty good report, right? No increased disease risk. You might have to work a little bit harder to lose weight, but your rate of aging is phenomenal. And uh, some of the other reports that we'll come out with, um, you know, just to sort of show you um, briefly. The uh, that will be on your newest reports is we will give you an inflammation report. And this tends to be highly, much more highly related than your classical blood-based biomarkers of CRP to neurological outcomes. Um, And and so I I won't go over this too much, but I will just show you a couple images which show you how much better it is than classical um, uh, CRP. Um, And so, you know, for instance, if you look in a cohort against aging, DNA methylation CRP shows a trend with age, but regular CRP doesn't. Um, and that's because CRP is, is too fluctuating. It can change up to a thousand fold within an hour. Um, yes. This DNA methylation CRP is a little bit more consistent. And so we can see trends we don't normally see. This is the same with cognitive function. Here we see DNA methylation CRP is highly correlated to cognitive function where regular CRP is not. Um, and again, we can see this even on brain MRIs with the brain. Here on the bottom left, you can see these are the phenotypes of the brain. Um, and you can see in the white is regular CRP and the effect size in the red is DNA methylation CRP. And you can see that we are much, much more 
associated to brain outcomes than regular CRP. Um, and so for all those reasons, uh, our predictors of CRP have a little bit more benefit than regular CRP. And we also include IL-6 in that comparison as well. Oh, it's also wow. related to those brain outcomes. And so you'll get that on your next oh. probably update within probably two or three weeks. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah, the other report that we'll do is that fitness age, or the, what we call the omic fit age. Um, and uh, the, the fit age acceleration was originally developed at UCLA, but we changed it with some algorithms and some better methylation risk scores. Uh, but we'd be able to tell you what your aging rate is uh, as a result of your fitness. Um, and again, this is not nearly as good as that omic age, but what it's what it's helpful for is keeping you honest on the level of fitness activities or fitness behaviors that you're doing. Because we'll be able to tell you your grip strength, your VO2 max, your gait speed, and your FUD1 um, and tell you where you sit on that percentile. This is obviously separated by sex um, as as grip strength and FUV1 in particular are very different with sex. Um, what is and- uh, FUV1? I don't know that one. Yeah. So it's the amount of forced expiratory volume you can have in your lungs. So if you breathe uh-huh. in, and then just breathe out as much as you can. That's essentially mm-hmm. what FEV1 is, how much mm-hmm. you're breathing out, that forced expiratory volume. Um, and it's another predictor of fitness and health as we we age, uh, much like VO2 max, but less metabolically inclined, so to speak. Um, oftentimes has to do with how well your lungs are, are fibrosing um, as well. Yep. Uh, and so, uh, but again, these are... Um, uh, just sort of uh, additional fitness biomarkers, just like we want to keep you honest with your smoking and drinking behaviors. We also want to keep you honest to make sure you're exercising. Right. Um, and this is a way you can strive to continually improve on there. So uh, how are you going to measure that? So that's going to be, um, you know, like, do we have to self-report that to you guys? What, the, you know, get this tested somewhere? What we've done is actually we, we've, uh, uh, we've measured this and methylation in a group of people. Um, and oh. then we basically told methylation to predict these outcomes. Um, oh. and so just with methylation, okay. we're able to predict it. Um, same with IL-6 and CRP. That's the exact same way we did that as well as we measured CRP and, you know, thousands of individuals and then create an algorithm to predict that, um, which works fairly well. Um, and that's actually where, you know, I would say we're going just generally with a ton of things. Um, wow. and I'll show you, uh, so oh, we can actually blowing. Yeah, it's super cool. Um, so just to let you, so in our newest omic age report, for instance, whenever we tell you, uh, we're going to be able to tell you what's increasing or decreasing your age. So we'll be able to tell you what your HbA1c is, your hemoglobin, your creatinine, all through methylation as the sole biomarker. Um, but even that, we can tell you about, you know, your, your insulin-like growth factor two or, um, you know, different metabolites like uridine or, or carotene diol or all these different things just from methylation alone. Um, and so we're really excited about where methylation can go, but we think it eventually can predict 60 or 70% of all the blood-based testing you would traditionally do um, just with the, this one test. Wow. That's, that's amazing because then we'll be able to track people without, you know, and we'll be able to do this ourselves and get really in-depth things that you usually, when you go to the doctor, you can't get, exactly. you know, you're just not going to get half of this sort of stuff. So, yeah. or no, you have to do you advanced know, we, we think, Yeah, we think the cost will also be driven down eventually, and we think that yeah with a simple blood stat instead of a lot of blood, meaning you don't, you know, it'll make it more accessible to people who can't go to the physician um, as yeah. well. I have to worry about, you know, refrigeration of samples or, you know, some of those other things. And so uh, we certainly think it'd be an amazing public health tool as it continues to grow and expand. Oh, I'm excited for this, Brian. Yeah, it's I mean, just absolutely I- amazing. 
yeah, this preprint will be coming out even just early next week. So, uh, so I'll share it with you and and all the cool things we can do here. And, and again, with our new homogage, these are all the things that are associated with better or worse, uh, you know, aging. Where um, you know, smoking, drug use, calendar age, BMI are all things that will increase your aging rate. Whereas you know, antioxidants, sexual activity, omega three fatty acids, and physical activity are all shown with better aging. So nothing here that's too surprising, um, but it's good again that we're seeing uh, consistency with what we already know. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's so, just absolutely mind blowing. And in 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 prediction of you know like when you've got different organs with different um, aging rates, like this is uh, the you know one of the the things I was talking with Greg McPherson about this week was you know like your you, like you said your heart may be aging faster than your liver or your kidney or, or whatever. Um, is that going to be a part of what you're going to do? Yeah, uh-huh. I don't know if you can see my screen now, <laughs> but. Uh, so these are, uh, in the case of our omic age, these are all these methylation risk scores that we've attributed to certain systems. Um, and, uh, and, and Yale just recently published a great, um, paper on systems aging. And what we're going to do is actually combine the two, um, combine all of our independent methylation risk scores of these individual metabolites, proteins, and clinical variables with some of that organ age specific, um, uh, rationale or makeup. Um, and so we're really excited about, uh, the ability to offer that, um, in the future, but we certainly will be able to, score each of your systems even already oh wow and so you, you, you'll be able to say and will you put this in the reports like would this be updated in reports that hey i'll know that my um you know heart's not, not doing too well not immediately, no. but we will yeah. certainly in the future um we we want to make sure it's it's uh publicly validated before we add it to our yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, once we publish on it and then look at different organ systems, uh, uh, we'll be able to make those uh, ideas. And and eventually this is what we imagine happening is that if we want to create a risk score, for instance, for diabetes risk, um, we can start to do that with with methylation, much like we would for age. But instead of trying to predict time until death as an outcome, we'll predict diabetes diagnosis. Right. Um, And in that we'll include our predictors of HbA1c or we'll predict our, you know, all of these, uh, um, I, I would say, you know, endocrine system related things like, you know, uh, hormone levels or IGF-1 or, or fasting glucose, right? All of those will then help us predict this ultimate outcome. So we can tell even very early clinically that these things are on its way. Another good example of this is recently they showed an article that said um, that your DNA methylation um, aging is actually can predict subclinical atherosclerosis. But before you develop, you know, a heart attack, uh, you would actually see your omic age increase. Um, and that's so you'll exactly- be able to do that- even before a scan would pick it up. Correct. You know, exactly. like, before, yeah. Wow. And that's sort of the technical term of subclinical. So we know that methylation is highly responsive to some of these changes. And we just want to be able to read those patterns so that we can interpret them and tell, you know, you and your physician before any other method. Um, and, and I think that's a really interesting part. And, and would these reports eventually have then lifestyle, you know, full lifestyle recommendations of what you should be thinking about taking or doing that you do in conjunction with your practitioner? Um, yeah, so we, we, we don't give a lot of recommendations on the report. And the reason being is that we never know everything that's going on with the patient, right? Um, and so we never yeah. want to conflict with what their physician is telling them, but we try and do a ton of education on what we know to change each of these markers. Um, and, and so we try and educate, but not recommend. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, until we know a lot more and these things have been more thoroughly validated, we want to be just extra cautious. So, um, yeah. so traditionally we'll, 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 we can talk about all the things for 
instance, that increase your or decrease your HbA1c or your fasting glucose and how that is probably going to decrease your aging rate. Uh, but we're not necessarily going to say, hey, your HbA1c is in the top 90th percentile, as we might see on this, and then say, as a result, we recommend berberine or dihydroberberine or metformin or SGL2 inhibitors or whatever it might be. We're not going to make those recommendations. We think that should happen with a clinician. Uh, but we might be able to tell you your HbA1c is what's increasing your aging rate the most. Um, and we might want to change that. Just interrupting the show to let you know about my longevity and anti-aging supplement range. I'd love you to go and check it out. Go to my website, lisatarmity.com and hit the shop button and you'll see a curated range of supplements, the latest in anti-aging, longevity, health optimization, performance optimization. I've gone out into the world, interviewed the most amazing doctors and scientists, as you'll know if you follow the show, and gone and got some of the best products that are out there. Stuff that I give to my family, that's what's in my range. So go and check it out at lisatamati.com. Wow. And so, so for any clinicians you know, out there in the audience, um, how do they get themselves trained up in this and how and moving forward, you know, what sort of um, educational um, things will they have so that they can, like I, you know, want to have this in my practice, how do I do that and be able to interpret these tests as they as they continue to to grow. And that's the thing. They keep always increasing. And so we do frequent education. Um, and so anyone at True Diagnostic is available to review those directly with a clinician uh, to make sure that we can educate exactly how we would use it. We have a couple of other really good resources, like our, as we, I showed you, our report interpretation guides, uh, and which tell you uh, sort of what we would recommend, uh, you know, everything from, you know, establishing, um, you know, what, why longevity and aging is important to what is DNA methylation to how should I interpret the Dunedin pace, for instance. Um, so we have a lot of resources and give a lot of education. And we're going to be starting to do a, a lot more education on our Omicage starting on August 10th. Um, awesome. And so we're going to have a, a lot of, uh, uh, of different education things available. Perfect. So just head on over to truediagnostic.com yeah. uh, and that's all, all, all available on there. Definitely. We also like to educate consumers. So we have a a YouTube channel, which has a lot of this information as well. Yeah. Fantastic. This is amazing. Because, you know, it's just getting that, getting it out there and and people understanding the implications of this and, you know, um, Oh, by the way, I love the book behind you. <laughs> I was about to say, I didn't know if you noticed it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> um, it, it. It's really, it's, it, uh, it's a fast moving place and it's quite a, it's quite a paradigm shift for clinicians and, and patients to, uh, get their head around. Why do this test and what it's going to bring and where the science is at currently, where not to place too much stock where, uh, you know, there's still work to be done on behalf of you guys and, and where this is potentially going. That's the exciting, that's the exciting thing. Um, so yeah, like this has just been absolutely amazing, Ryan. I can't wait to see this. And I'll continue to update you as those new reports come out in case anything uh, is surprising. But, but uh, you know, just judging from my estimation, um, I would imagine that once we have that omic age algorithm, you're going to see your age decrease pretty substantially versus what it was in the other algorithms uh, because we're really measuring right. the biological signal just like we would with the Dunedin pace. And I think you'll see it be a lot more consistent. Yeah, yeah, this is gold. So uh, if I want to do that Olympics thing, I'll have to head on over to that website. So you'll send me that as well. I will. I'll send you that as well as a bunch of these PowerPoints so you can always go through it yourself. And if you have any other questions, just let me know. Absolutely fabulous, Ron. 
That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends. Head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatamati.com.